Hey, welcome to the George Sanders Show, everybody. Uh, I'm going to say this right now before I forget, Sean. Before I introduce anything, I'm going to just get this out of the way right now so that no one can, you know, crucify us later. Um, you and I, you know, we've gone on record before about spoiling things and about how, you know, it. we don't care about spoilers on our show. But this, I think this week in particular... Uh, we we should make the the spoiler warning for anybody listening out there because uh, we were talking about two films this week. Uh, David Fincher's new film Gone Girl, uh, which is in theaters right this very second, uh, and George Sluzer's film uh, The Vanishing, uh, the original version of The Vanishing, not the the remake with uh, Jeff Bridges. Who was in that the re- the remake? I think Jeff Kiefer Bridges. Sutherland. Kiefer Sutherland. Nah. One of one of one of somebody like that. I think a keeper was in there, but anyway. Uh, so one of one of movies. one of the keepers. One, one of the many keepers. Um, but I think we need to lay, lay it out flat that we are going to be spoiling the hell out of both of those movies this week. So if if you haven't seen either of them and and you you want to go in to these movies, uh, you know, fresh faced. Uh, Stop listening now or skip ahead to a later part in the show because uh, yeah, it's going to be pretty brutal this week. If you don't want to hear about the aliens who abducted Ben Affleck's wife, then you need to stop <laughs> listening right now because we can't talk about the movie without talking about the aliens. So. It's true. It's very true. Uh, so in addition to The Vanishing and Gone Girl, uh, we have a few other things this week. We have a recap uh, from your Vancouver uh, Film Festival experience, which I look forward to getting into. Um, we're going to talk about Eleanor Glynn, uh, who's our person of the week, um, and the it girl phenomenon, uh, and the history of that. Uh, we're also going to talk about Scarecrow. Get ready for it, people. <laughs> Spoiler alert. Scarecrow's coming up this episode. Um, and we're going to listen to a lot of Nine Inch Nails because, uh, Sean and I are, uh, depressed and gothy. So that's what you're going to have to deal with. Um, I kind of I kind of feel like we don't really have to to worry about spoilers for Gone Girl because hasn't any everyone already seen it and already moved on? Like it's been out for two weeks. Uh, I don't know. I, I maybe. Well, and also on top of that, um, everybody but presumably you and me. I don't know. Maybe you did, but uh, read the book. <laughs> so, I, I did not. My wife read it. My yeah, my girlfriend read it. So yeah. uh, you know. But so, yeah, I mean, it's it's a phenomenon that most people are aware of. And so, I mean, that gives us some license to just spoil the hell out of it. But, you know, I mean, it took me like, what, five months to get around to boyhood. So, you know, there are people out there that, yeah. you know, take their time. So, so anyway. this is this is this is for all those people who have uh, who have not gotten sick of talk about Gone Girl in the, the two weeks that it's been out. That's right. Yeah. Uh, I'll, this, I'll... One, this one's for you. Yeah. <laughs> uh, all right, well, let's hear a clip from uh, David Fincher's uh, film. Nick Dunn, you're probably the most hated man in America right now. Did you kill your wife, Nick? Everyone told us and told us marriage is hard work. Not for me and Nick. As you all know, my wife, Amy Elliott Dunn, disappeared three days ago. I had nothing to do with the disappearance of my wife. I have nothing to hide. Sammy got friends we can talk to? No, not really. You don't know if she has friends, you don't know what she does all day, and you don't know your wife's blood type. He's being a good guy, so everybody can see him being a good guy. Well, you really don't like him, do you? All I'm trying to do is be nice to the people who are volunteering to help find Amy. 
I will practice believing my husband loves me. But I could be wrong. You ever seen that guy in the glasses before? Amy is the kind of girl who attracts admirers. Whoever took her is bound to bring her back. I'm hoping you can tell me what this means. You want to solve Amy's treasure hunt? Huh? You seen this girl around here? Yeah, I remember her. I know you. I saw you at the volunteer center. I wanted to help. What's your want? She wanted a gun. We are all scared that we are all here now. I feel like something to be jettisoned if necessary. I feel like I could disappear. Okay, so that was a clip from Gone Girl. I'm just going to basically lay out the plot here um, so that we can just dive into the whole thing. Um, ben Affleck uh, plays a unhappily married man um, who moved with his wife, Rosamund Pike, to, um, from New York City um, back to his hometown. Uh, and their marriage is, is not on the best uh, footing. And uh, he comes home the day of their anniversary um, to find the house broken into, uh, furniture turned over, and she is gone. Um, all signs point to Affleck as the uh, kidnapper or murderer or what have you, um, and he swears his innocence. Um, and as the movie goes on, secrets are revealed about him and, you know, uh, affair an affair that he had and kind of you know giving a more well-rounded view of what kind of a jerk he is um but then we also find out um about halfway through the film what actually happened to the gone girl um amy uh, and it's not what you think obviously um she faked it all and uh and in and it's very over the top. I mean, this movie is like it, when if 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 I get into the the, the specifics of, of what happens from here on out, uh, this movie is totally bonkers and bananas. And I think we will we will touch on all those points. But um, the movie continues to play out as as we follow her on on the run, as it were, um, and then also Ben Affleck as he's uncovering all of the the clues that she set up to frame him for this. Uh, disappearance and uh it's directed by david fincher um who we all know and you know he's he's one of the the main figures in american cinema right now um for the last decade and a half or however long and it's been longer than that now hasn't it i mean when did seven come out when i mean it's been like he's like 20 years or something yeah uh alien three yeah it was was like like 20 years ago yeah so um and this is very much in Fincher's wheelhouse um, in some respects. Um, I'd like to touch on what that means and and maybe what this movie doesn't do that I, you know I was expecting from David Fincher. But um, yeah, so it's it's the big movie of the season, and um, like you said at the beginning, and or we haven't seen it. We haven't read the book. Excuse me. We uh, neither of us read the book, so we went in totally cold. Um, were you surprised by this film, Sean? Did, did the twists keep you engaged? Did it, did it have you, you know, bobbing and weaving, trying to figure out what was going on? What, what was your initial um, experience with the film? I, 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 no. <laughs> I had a feeling that was going to be the answer. <laughs> I mean, I, I, I did not, I was not surprised by anything in the movie, really. Uh-huh. Uh, but that doesn't except mean for the, that, except that, for the aliens, right? Yeah, except for the aliens. But that doesn't mean that I didn't like it. Uh-huh. So uh, it it didn't work for me as that kind of 
the, oh my god, how shocking, I can't believe that that twist happened kind of, of story. Um, is that how you experienced? Were you, I, were you yeah, like blown I, away by the twist? I was not blown away by the twist. Um, I, yeah, my experience with the film was interesting. I, I walked out of it being like, that was good. That was a solid movie. It was kind of what I was expecting to get out of it. Um, you know, I, I didn't spoil anything for myself going in. I'd, I'd heard, you know, that the critical consensus was, you know, good surrounding the film. And, and, um, and I had a good time with it. But I, I walked out of it feeling a little let down um, in terms of Fincher's filmography. I really like a lot of Fincher's work, and I think we can dive into that um, a, la- a little later on. Um, but the movie did kind of stick with me, and um, there are elements of this movie that I, I did enjoy quite a bit. Um, but the whole central surprise um, was not really what what it was for me. It wasn't what uh, was the meat and potatoes uh, for me with this. So for me, the the dawning of what actually happened of, of uh, Amy faking all of that stuff, it wasn't a surprise, shock, crazy twist to me. But at the same time, once that part of the narrative kicked in and we started to see all of the work that she went into putting it together... Um, that's when I did get on board with the movie more. Like the first, like, I don't know, whatever it is, the first third of it, I was kind of indifferent to to everything that was going on. Um, but, and I think that personally, I, I think Fincher's uh, interest in this movie might s- stem mostly from the methodical planning <laughs> um, that, that, her character goes through um, as, as is pretty well known. David Fincher is a very methodical uh, director um, and he's kind of obsessed with, uh, you know, meticulousness. And, and I think that part of his attraction to this property is, this is all of an, an assumption. Sure. But uh, is that is, is showing uh, all of the steps that she goes through to enact this crazy plan and all of the little clues that she leaves behind, literally marked as clues, um, are yeah. part of his enjoyment in this film. Yeah, he's he's very much, and, and, and more so as his career goes on, a, a director of, of procedurals, of of like little details and, and processes and seeing how things work out. Normally uh, with with crimes... Or in the case of the social network, it's it's kind of a crime. There's like depositions going on, but uh, it's like these step by step recreations of events. Like Zodiac is probably the best example of that. But this is this is another one where where the procedural element kind of takes precedence, at least for Fincher. But then there's also this whole other layer to the story, which is. Uh, which is, you know, kind of what it all means. And and that's what has generated most of the discussion about it. Uh, a lot of it uh, tends to be like like most of these things are. Uh, what it means is basically whatever you want to think it means. Like whatever your pet issue is, it either confirms or is a a, a black mark for society. Yeah. Um... I think, and we can dive into that if you want to. I, 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 I personally don't think Fincher has any interest in not, any of that stuff. <laughs> uh, from- yeah, yeah, and I think uh, 
I think I think that's kind of the same the same way I view it. I actually I think it's a, I think it's a comedy. I think it's a black comedy. It oh, might, it's hilarious! It might be a satire. I'm not sure if you want to kind of get into what the difference between satire and comedy is. But I don't think that that Fender, Fincher has anything really profound to say about marriage. I don't think he's really interested in that. Right. Uh, and, I think and, that Gillian Flynn might. But I'm not sure. She's the the author of the book who also wrote the screenplay. Uh, but but much like the Social Network, I see that the uh, it seems to me that the 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 kind of the message that the screenwriter is attempting to get across is of of tangential at best interest to what Fincher is attempting to do with his I, film. I agree, one thousand percent. Well, and, that and, that makes for bad radio, Mike. <laughs> well it's a podcast so there you go it's not radio um no i but i do i completely agree with you on that um and i think that that tension though can make this can make a movie interesting like i i think that and i don't want to you know ascribe um things to you know i don't know who who is responsible for what really i don't know what uh jillian flynn's obsessions are but it does seem like that's part of the the text, um, obviously, um, th- but then it does seem like there's a there's a, a remove in terms of the the execution, which is more of Fincher's um, you know expertise or, or his area. Um, yeah, because what well, what we basically have here is like a a a, a woman's revenge story. Like she she feels wronged by her husband for a variety of reasons. He's He's not as exciting as as he pretended to be when they were dating. Uh, she lost her job, and they had to move back to Missouri, where he's like greeted like a rock star, and she's bored and and hates all of the Midwestern people that she meets. Uh, and then he has an affair with a younger woman, so she he he cheats on her. So you know she concocts this this outlandish revenge scheme that only gets more outlandish as it goes along in order to to punish him for his infidelity. And there's there's two ways to read that either as uh as like the worst nightmare uh for the uh the woman hating uh man's club uh, right like of, the fatal attraction kind of thing. Right. It's yeah. like women are women are crazy and <laughs> will fuck you yeah. over. Right. Uh or you can you know, or if you uh, if you choose, you can view it as like a female empowerment thing, like like uh, like uh, the the femme fatale of film noir. These are are you know powerful women who are you know crushing the men who do them wrong. Or or if I may posit this, uh, it's about two ridiculous cartoon characters uh, <laughs> getting lost in this. Uh, labyrinth of insanity um, that has no bearing on actual reality. Um, well, what? <laughs> but, uh, I I kind of lean in that direction. Like, I don't think either of those first two explanations like fully, you know, satisfies the totality of the film. I think they're both kind of leaving out elements. Uh, it seems to me to be more about, and you know, this this is Flynn. I think more than Fincher to be a, a commentary about marriage. And a view of marriage as as both a competition and a trap, uh, and it seems to be satirizing that point of view to me because I don't think that that marriage or or committed relationships between men and women or between two people at all 
uh, are those things, but it seems like popular culture at least perceives it as that. And so this is like a reducto ad absurdum of, of that view of relationships. Well, I, like this is like the worst possible marriage trap or the worst possible competition where these two people are just like constantly, you know, screwing each other over just to get one up in the, in the marriage war. Yeah. And unfortunately, um, at one point the text makes that too explicit for me and it comes at the very end of the movie, but, um, I can't, I don't know the exact quote, but Ben Affleck talks about, um, the horrible state of their relationship and how he basically says exactly what you said in different words just now. And then she says, well, that's what marriage is. And it, and that. Right. But, but I don't, I don't think the film is saying that that is what marriage is. I'm saying that, uh, I think, uh, that it is making fun of these people that think that that's what marriage is. Yeah, I, I can see that. Um, I just, I, there's, there's a thread that's similar to that, that I think this movie is, is flirting with dealing, uh, is flirting with that I think is, it, actually, it's probably the same thread. It's just maybe uh, uh, zoomed out a little bit um, that I think is more interesting than that. Cause I think um, poking fun at that is kind of silly because the whole thing is kind of silly. Yeah. <laughs> If if I may say that, um, and actually talking about silliness, I, I well I'm going to go into the whole thing here. But um, what I find interesting about this movie, and what I think um, maybe Flynn's larger um, obsession is with in this, is um, kind of archetypes and people's expectations of those archetypes and like what these people are supposed to you know the roles these people are rigidly supposed to be filling um and how they are not like that and i think that what in the movie that's best exemplified in this amazing amy backstory of her parents creating this fictional character um based on her uh, as she's growing up and um, how they channeled all of their disappointment in their daughter um, into this fictional version of her, um, which gets very meta. <laughs> but um, by making her an overachiever and making her successful at everything she does, which obviously contributes to her you know, complex, as it were. Um, and I think that there's a really interesting hint of something there that i that the movie doesn't fully explore but it but it i don't know i, th- I think it does because we get uh her her rebelling against that with with her scheme she gives the the i'm not a cool, cool girl monologue but my problem is with the movie is is it uses that when it's narratively convenient for it self like but when it's not it kind of or I, well now that i'm saying it maybe i'm convincing myself the opposite but um but then it doesn't do that with other characters. There are side characters in this movie that purely function as those archetypes and do nothing more than that. There's the idiot neighbor, um, which is a funny section, um, you know, but yeah, it's, it's, she's clearly Casey Wilson, who I love. Yeah. Um, it, and, um, but she clearly, there's nothing more to her character. And then, well, no, I don't think the movie is interested in any characters other than, than Nick and Amy. Well, I, I but this is where my frustration lies is that um, I think that, that's kind of a cop out, especially um, when the movie takes so much time with um, 
these reality not reality show but like these um nancy grace type people um that are kind of feeding on the um the tragedy or the you know the supposed tragedy that's that's going on here and what i would have liked to have seen here is um for us to to see another dimension to to maybe this nancy grace type host or somebody instead she's just clearly it's it's you know it's just going for the low hanging fruit and i and i think that the movie could have done a little bit more with um yeah well the uh with the the nancy grace figure we see her you know just as she's not she's not like a crusader she's just in it for the story she's just she doesn't really care you well, know. yeah, but I mean, she, didn't, so we, all, didn't yeah. we all always think that from the, I mean, we all thought that from the beginning. Yeah, it, like it's not, it's not a very profound media satire, but, but I, the thing that I think is interesting about that is that, uh, is that Amy monologues against this, about this idea that, that she's not the, the cool girl. She's not the, the image that her parents or her husband had of her yet. Uh, her many of her complaints about her husband are that he's not the guy that he pretended to be either. Sure. Well, like and then he's she, and he's, not... he's not he's not like the charming you know Manhattanite who who took her to like a sugar snowstorm. He's he's <laughs> now just kind of a, a a schlubby guy who wants to go eat at Outback. Right. And uh, so you know she's you know she's just as guilty as this as anyone else of of mistaking the perception for the reality and and being and then becoming disappointed when when things don't live up to to expectation well, and then she decides to just embrace the lie, and you know i mean the end of this movie is so um <laughs> Yeah, and it's it's it's, it's so a really it's a really great yeah. ending. Like it gets yeah. <laughs> so kind of tangled up in in itself that it's 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 really fun. Well, and that's what I was saying about how the movie stuck with me. Where I watched the movie and I had a great experience with it. I laughed along with it. Um, you know, the over the top, the really gruesome, uh, violent, you know, scene was absolutely hilarious um, and great. <laughs> yeah, that that whole sequence with with Neil Patrick Harris who, it might who be my favorite we haven't part of the mentioned movie. yet, like the just the uh, the really creepy rich guy with, like Octopus and Scrabble. Yeah. Is the that, best, that might the be best my line in the film. in the whole movie. Yeah. Uh, but so but then after the movie, I kind of dwelled on all of all of the tangles that that uh, are left for us by the by the time the credits come up and it and it did kind of stick with me for a few days. Um, which I enjoyed, and so I, I think I appreciated this movie more um, after the fact than I did after the initial viewing. Of so, it. however, I, let me just. Uh, however, I wish the movie. I, I don't. I don't want answers, but I wish the movie had done a little bit more with what it laid out there. Um, at least, kind of nudge it in a direction or so, but. But I enjoy I enjoy you know the mess that's left. I guess. Yeah, I, I I enjoy the mess. So it, it sounds like you you agree with me. Like uh, I, you know, like I said, my my wife read this book, and I was you know we were talking about it. And uh, did she see the movie with you? No, no, oh, I okay. I saw the movie uh, in Vancouver, and she didn't want to watch it with me. She wanted to watch it with her friend who also read the book with her. So. Uh, so I went and saw it without her, and then I had to wait two weeks for her to actually go and see it before we could talk about it. But anyway, I, I was talking to her about it, and and she didn't view it as 
uh, either the book or, or or the movie as being like a like a general commentary about marriage or the perception of marriage or anything like that. She just uh, viewed it as as a specific story about these two people, and and she didn't want to generalize from that, which it is not how I saw it at all. Like it, it always yeah. seemed seemed archetypal to me. Ben, it sounds like you you agree with me that that uh, yeah, I agree with you completely. Like um, I, I think I think both are are totally valid ways to approach the movie. Obviously, but uh, it was interesting to me that she did not kind of generalize from that. Hmm. Well, go, which, wake her, uh, go wake her up and bring her in the room. I want to talk to her. <laughs> well, what, what what that actually made me think of is is Boyhood, which was like the movie of the summer that you only just recently kind of got around to watching. <laughs> and and uh, a lot of the, the reaction to Boyhood was about uh, its, its relatability. Like uh, the, there's like this whole generation of internet film reviewers who are in love with Boyhood because they're like, it's my life on the screen. And uh, which just kind of made me nauseous. <laughs> I thought it was a, a you know a perfectly fine film. I think I think you you and I are, are mostly in like the same boat in what we thought of it. Like it's it's good, it's not great. Um, but this this idea of relatability and and specificity and kind of a, a generality in the way that you respond to a movie is is interesting to me. And I and I wonder if like there are specific things in movies that that make us think about them one way and not another or if it's just kind of a whim like we choose to go down this one path when we're watching this movie i don't know if that's a question i can answer <laughs> yeah i don't i don't know if it's really a question it's just kind yeah. of a, yeah. a a thought that occurred yeah. to me no that's a, that's a valid point i mean um what i'll say in regards to this versus boyhood is um Boyhood, to me, I know I'm in the minority, um, was pretty inert to me. Um, there wasn't much more to Boyhood uh, than, you know, a history of haircuts and technology. Like, it didn't really, like, which is weird for me with Linklater, because um, I, I, I tend to like his stuff. Maybe not love it completely, but there's usually something to grapple with there. Mm-hmm. Um, and with Boyhood, I thought it was probably his most boring like kind of mundane movie besides the the kind of trick of the movie or the you know conceit of it um and what i'll say about uh gone girl is that um that's not the case i mean this this movie this movie's willing to get batshit insane and uh that's way more entertaining to me yeah Um, and, and, and interesting i guess i guess uh like i didn't i didn't relate to boyhood at all because it's like it's a generation after me, so it's like the fact that there's a Coldplay song, you know, doesn't remind me of my youth. Uh, it just reminds me of when I was in my twenties and and didn't like Coldplay. Uh, <laughs> you were still listening to Nine Inch Nails. <laughs> yeah, and in and in the same way, I didn't I didn't relate to to Gone Girl either. Right, I didn't. Yeah, I didn't relate to yeah. either. I mean, I related to little bits of each of them, but I didn't think that uh, I didn't see myself in either movie. Yeah, <laughs> in the long run, you know, yeah. um, and I don't, I don't know that that like seeing yourself in a movie is necessarily a criterion of value. Oh to put no, put it in in you know yeah. slightly more snooty terms. Like I don't know that that's a reason why a movie is good that I can relate to it. No, that's a stupid reason to like a movie. I, I mean, <laughs> I mean, you can. I mean, if a movie really taps into like some kind of 
facet of your personal experience and and kind of wells that up within you, that's great. And that means that the movie's working. I mean, I think that means that the movie's effective if it if it manages to kind of do something like that. Um, I, you know, I think that, that that's an admirable quality to a movie, but to just uh, to just see yourself in a movie and then that being the reason that you appreciate it um, seems a bit narcissistic and uh, it's solipsistic. The whole thing. It's, it's yeah. all kind of cystics. Yeah. It's cystic vibrosis. Um, <laughs> so speaking of, of narcissists, uh, you, you have some thoughts about Trent Reznor and the score for, for <laughs> uh, no, I don't really have that many, like I don't have any profound thoughts. Um, but I, I I really enjoy the collaboration between David Fincher and Atticus Ross and Trent Reznor that they've done over their last three movies, um, with, starting with Social Network and then uh, Girl with the Dragon Tattoo, um, and now this. Um, the the scores that that he's doing um, are really uh, they 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 sync up so perfectly with with the worldview of David Fincher and and that kind of eerie. Um, melancholic, like just kind of unease that you get um, in these little plinking piano, you know, notes and and kind of static fuzz and stuff. And um, I I really enjoy that. And 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 we're gonna we're gonna hear some more. Um, I, we're gonna hear a little bit later in the show of uh, music that Trent Reznor made that was kind of a precursor to all that stuff um, from the Ghosts one through four album, um, which we'll be playing throughout the show, which I think is a really underrated and totally awesome record. Um, what I'm what what's interesting to me right now, and and something that was part of uh, kind of nagging at me with with um, Gone Girl is. I'm wondering where David Fincher is right now in his career. And I wonder if where he's at right now is, is the optimal place for him to be at. Um, I enjoyed Gone Girl. Um, I, I quite enjoyed Girl with the Dragon Tattoo. Um, but as uh, Lindy said, after we watched um, Gone Girl, she said, you know, David Fincher's kind of like in his like housewife uh, chic mode right now, where he's adapting these kind of like tawdry bestsellers that you know housewives read to kind of like give themselves a jolt or whatever, and which is fine. That's totally you know nothing wrong with that. Like um, you know Hitchcock adapted bestsellers and and you know genre fair all the, and yeah. And one of, of Hitchcock's the best favorite authors was Daphne du Maurier, who is yeah. Who is by no means a step up from Gillian Flynn or or Stig Larsson. Right. Um, however, <laughs> um, these movies seem a little the, the more, more recent ones um, or the last two at least seem a little safe to me. And uh, the David Fincher movie that I like the most is uh, Zodiac, um, which to me. Is a is seems of a more like a pure expression and something that's that's thornier, and something that is uh, m- more open ended, but in a more fascinating way. And um, it, I I kind of wish he was 
more engaged with the material than I think he has been on his last couple of films where he's, he's clearly, you know, uh, a great craftsman. You know, he, the, the, the scenes are, are, are well put together. He gets a good cast together. He, he has his group with you know, Trent Reznor and, and the same kind of crew working on the film. Um, and so they're, they're, they're packaged really nicely. Um, but I wonder if he's not working to the best of his abilities. Uh, I don't. I don't think he is. And and by comparison, uh, the the director he's he's most often compared with, and I think it's a it's a fantastic comparison is is Otto Preminger, who we talked about early like on two or four yeah, or something when uh, we talked about Whirlpool. But but like like Fincher, Preminger was a, a a director of of procedurals, and he often also adapted kind of pulpy best selling novels like uh, Exodus. Or you know stuff like that, the cardinal, uh, and he would he you know especially late in his career he would make these these long movies kind of kind of kind of rambling along you know procedural step by step dramas about often about institutions or you know something like the the Senate and advising consent or uh, you know like a, a murder trial and anatomy of murder. Where the the conclusion of of whether the the guy who's charged with the crime is actually guilty or innocent is kind of left up in the air, and we're not really sure. You know, much like in, in Zodiac, um, the difference I think between between Preminger and and Fincher, both of which are were were terrific stylists, and and I think Fincher is is, is certainly up there with 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 Preminger as far as that goes. Uh, I think that 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 Preminger had like a curiosity about the world. And kind of a passionate interest in things that Fincher seems to lack. Yeah, Fincher's uh, outlook on uh, the you know humanity <laughs> um, is is pretty bleak, and he doesn't. Well, I don't. Even, I don't even know that it's like bleak in like the sense that like Christopher Nolan like hates everything. Like I, I think Fincher just doesn't isn't just just isn't interested, and and that that kind of bugs me about him. But I, it you know, it, not not enough that I don't really like his movies because I I do really like them. But if we're going to like poke holes in David Fincher's career, like that's the, that's like the thing that that for me makes uh, Michael Mann, who's a, a contemporary, is often often compared with Fincher, uh, makes Michael Mann much more interested interesting to me than Fincher is that Michael Mann like really like gets intensely excited about things and is really into stuff. Right. Whereas Fincher is much more detached and and cold and and uh, professional. Yeah, and it, it it does like I've liked to varying degrees all of Fincher's work, and I get excited when he has a new one coming out. But it but it makes him his work hard to love, and you know like um, I the movies that. I, of his that I I respond to the most are the ones that kind of seem to have the most personality to them um like gone girl is clearly a david fincher film but it still feels a little bit like a work for hire kind of thing but something like zodiac or um the game which i i mentioned on a show a while back um that i caught up with a year or two ago um and it's just totally it's hilarious in the same vein that gone girl is where it's just absolutely bananas um those are the movies that I, I respond to the most of him and I, and that I really enjoy. And, um, you know, if he's going to adapt, you know, it, there was a, there was a trailer for 50 shades of gray 
playing before Gone Girl. <laughs> and strange as it is, I can see David Fincher taking on Fifty Shades of Grey, like, um, as his next project, like, and and make and making something out of it, but not necessarily making um, a movie I would, you know, really enjoy, <laughs> or you know, what like get excited about. Should I say? Yeah, I mean, like, as uh, as he stands now, I I find it hard to to imagine that David Fincher would make a movie that I didn't like. But it it also is hard to imagine him making a movie that I really love. Yeah, yeah, which I, is kind of what you just said. That's exactly what I just said. But <laughs> hey, you know, it, that's all right. Um, but yeah, you know, Gone Girl's good. It's you know, it's fun. Um, it's good. It's really so, it's really good. It's really good. I actually do want to see it again. Um, and actually just got Benjamin Button at home, which uh, was one that I avoided because it looked all Oscar baity. But people keep telling me it's good, so I'm going to watch it and. Yeah, I need I need to see that one. I need to see uh, Dragon Tattoo also. Dragon Tattoo, I really I I did li- I like that one more than this one. Um, I w- but what I will say, the Dragon Tattoo like teaser trailer that they made for it, um, where they set um, Trent Reznor and Karen O's version of uh, Led Zeppelin's Immigrant Song uh, to the trailer and and edited it like it. it it's a it's the best movie of like the last five years is is that fucking trailer like the movie can never stand up to that trailer it is so good um but but I did enjoy the movie uh but speaking of Trent Reznor uh, and what I was saying earlier um here's a song um off the ghosts one through four double album thingy um this is one of those ghosts uh they're all called ghosts so here's a ghost. <laughs> Welcome back to the show, everybody. Uh, so, Sean, you recently uh, came back from your journey abroad uh, to Vancouver for the, what year was this? The sixth year you've gone to the Vancouver International Film Festival? Yeah, sixth in seven years. And how did this uh, year rate uh, compared to years past? 
Did uh, pretty well. Pretty well. Okay. Uh, I saw I saw a lot of really good movies, but uh, there was a lot of kind of like annoying things about the festival this year. Like like uh, the the problem last year was that their main you know centrally located multiplex venue that had like seven screens all devoted to the festival which made like a for a great central location uh was closed mm. uh, Wait, so that was that was last year that was last year ah. so so they had to move to to another multiplex kind of like on the edge of chinatown where they only had like three or four screens uh which made getting from one theater to another much more difficult because they're like 15 blocks away so there's a lot of walking uh, that was, uh, again, the case this year, but uh, I didn't have to do as much walking because it seemed like like every day uh, the movies I were seeing were either at one end of downtown or the other. Mm-hmm. So that that was nice. The, the problem was that uh, with the way that they were scheduled this year, there was a lot of overlap of movies that I wanted to see and a lot of dead space where there weren't any movies that I wanted to see, which mm-hmm. which made it difficult. Like there was there was a lot of stuff that I that I missed uh, for various reasons, like uh, like the tale of Princess Kaguya or uh, the Princess of France, the Princess double feature, Olivier mm-hmm. uh, uh, Assayas's uh, Clouds of Silver Maria, uh, Alain Rene's uh, Life of Riley, uh, uh, J.P. Sniadecki's Iron Ministry. Uh, these are all movies that I really wanted to see, but wasn't able to for for one reason or another, and and that's really frustrating. Because when you're when you're there for eight days, I mean, you should be able to see all of the movies, don't you think? Right. And right. and I don't know if it's if it's just kind of like a random thing because this is the first time this has ever happened where it's been this bad. Normally, there's like one or two movies that overlap that I can't see, uh, or if it just had to do with just the way that they scheduled this year. Maybe there's somebody new in charge who has different tastes than I do, so they don't really care about <laughs> making sure that the the Sniadecki and the Asayas don't play at the exact same time. I don't know. Like yeah. if if uh, the Lissandro uh, Alonso movie had started ten minutes later, I would have been able to see the Olivier Assayas movie. Mm-hmm. But they overlapped, so so what are you going to do? Uh, well, of what you did see, uh, were the were the films up to up? Did they cut the mustard? Yeah. Well, I don't think that's the phrase that you you want to <laughs> use there. Did it cut the mustard? Cut the cheese. Yeah, cut the mustard works. Cut the cheese. Don't yeah. get that anywhere near movie theater. Yeah, there's no... <laughs> yeah, other than the Godard movie, there was very little cutting of the cheese. Uh, no, it was, re- it was really good. There was a lot of really great movies, as there are every year. Uh, I, don't, I don't know that it was is quite as good as uh, the 2012 festival, which was like the most amazing thing ever. But... I'm looking at the list of of the movies I made when I was there, and I have 13 movies on, that I gave a letterbox rating of four and a half or five stars to. That's so, pretty impressive. So that's pretty good. Yeah. Uh, Considering so, that uh, of I haven't given a single 2014 film uh, anything higher than a four <laughs> this year. I'd, I'd say you're doing pretty good. Yeah, but but we know that I I inflate star ratings compared to you by That's... at least uh, one full star. <laughs> so I'm, uh, I'm stingy. So uh, yeah, mo- most most of the stuff I saw is is stuff that you're going to be familiar with. You're going to hear about if you if you know if not already. Um, 
So I don't I don't know that I really need to talk about any of them in detail. Like you don't you don't need me to tell you that the Frederick Wiseman movie is really good or the the John Luc Godard movie is really good. Um, Listen up, Philip just opened in New York. That's uh, the Alex Ross Perry movie. It's really good. Uh, <laughs> the Pedro Costa movie Horse Money is uh, is pretty fantastic. Uh, the Lissandra Alonso film is coming out at some point. I think Cinema Guild is releasing it. I'm not sure. Uh, it's uh, uh, It stars Viggo Mortensen, who also produced it. It's uh, it's called Hauha, and that is how you say it. Uh, uh, that one I I liked a lot. It's uh, it's uh, it's uh, set in the. It's set in the in the wilderness in Argentina, and and Mortensen is like a soldier, and he's out on this campaign that the the Argentine military had done through to like pacify all of like the 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 Indian locals to make it safe for colonization. And his daughter runs off with another soldier, so he sets off on this journey to find his daughter. So it's 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 kind of like the Searchers, except like with just the one guy, and he's going off into the wilderness and. Uh, then weird shit starts to happen. And yeah, it's really I, cool. I think I read uh, some reports. I think that played at Toronto too. And, and it yeah. uh, definitely uh, grabbed my interest. That, that one sounded really cool. I'm glad to hear that it was, uh, it was good. Yeah, def- definitely, definitely go see that one when, when it comes out. Uh, and my favorite film of the festival, um, as is usually the case, I, I come out of the film festival with my favorite being the Hong Sang Soo movie. And, <laughs> Uh, you know, usually as as the year goes by, I kind of lower the Hong movie in, in my rankings so that it's like like in another country was my favorite film of of 2012 when I saw it at at Vancouver, and now it's still in the top ten, but it's not in that lofty spot anymore. I think Hill of Freedom might might stay up there because oh, it's yeah. it's it's really great, and it it won't. I'm positive, almost positive, it won't get a, a reasonable release in the U.S. even though it's mostly in English. Because it's only 60, 65 minutes long, and and theaters don't really know what to do with that yeah. the length of the movie. But it is, uh, it's one of his, uh, uh, it's, it's so easy to watch, yet it's so like densely complicated the more you think about it. Uh, it's, it's, just, it's just kind of a, like a, an effortless kind of masterpiece from Hong. Like we, we, we talked about him with, uh, 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 Virgin strip, bear by the her. Virgin strip bear by her bachelors and, uh, how he's kind of interested in like these, these narrative games. Like there's, there's a, a movie that kind of repeats the same day over and over again. There's in another country where the, the girl is writing, uh, uh, three different versions of a screenplay and we see it acted out. And there's other kinds of like little loops and, and repetitions throughout his films. Uh, Hill of Freedom takes like the the simplest conceit in the world. Like a, a man is writing letters to a woman, telling him about his day. There's a different letter for every day, and and we see the story as she's reading the letters. But then after about 15 minutes or so reading the letters, uh, she moves to a cafe, and as she's walking down the stairs, she drops the letters and jumbles up the order. So the rest of the the movie that we see is in the jumbled up order of the letters that, that he's written. That sounds awesome. Yeah. And, and, <laughs> and there's a, uh, of course she, she forgets a letter. Well, of course. So there's a missing bit of the narrative, but we don't know what's in the missing letter. 
So it's just, it's such a, a, a simple trope that makes the film like endlessly complicated. And, you know, there's, there's, there's drinking, there's awkward, you know, social interactions, there's uh, inappropriate you know, sexual activities. It's everything you want from a Hong Sang Soo film. Sure. So that's great. <laughs> and also The Midnight After I saw again, we, we talked about it. It was my favorite film from uh, the Seattle Film Festival. And uh, it's, it's still really great. I still really yeah. love that movie. And, and that's another one that probably won't get released but uh, if it does show up on like Netflix or something like that, I think Rigor Mortis just showed up on Netflix. That was one that played at SIF that, that I didn't get to see. Uh, definitely go check out Midnight After. But uh, the, last, the last one I want to talk about is, is the one that I, I, I tried to convince people to go and see with me because I was really excited about it. Uh, but I, I failed and nobody else, uh, as far as I know, has actually seen it. Uh, is uh, a film from Hong Kong called Uncertain Relationship Society, which is an awkward title, but but it works. And it's uh, it's directed by a woman named Hayward Mack, who, uh, when I was getting ready for the festival, uh, I watched a bunch of movies by, by directors who I knew had films playing there that I hadn't seen anything by them before. So I saw a Pedro Costa movie. I saw a Lissandro Alonso movie. And I also saw a, a Hayward Mack movie called uh, X, which is uh, uh, kind of a romantic comedy about young twenty-somethings uh, in in Hong Kong. It's like it's got a, like a complicated flashback structure as this woman kind of moves in with her ex-boyfriend after breaking up with her current boyfriend, and she flashes back to uh, you know like the origin and the history of her relationships with these exes, and then it ends up with her. Uh, kind of moving out on her own and instead of like following a romantic comedy formula where uh, where her story concludes by her coupling up uh, it ends with her kind of you know becoming a, a fully formed adult on her own which I thought was a neat twist to the the you know like the the romantic film template I approve of that uh, well on so I, re I really liked that movie, and, and my wife really liked it too. Uh, so I wanted to make sure to, to go and see her new film, and uh, it's even better. And what it basically does is it takes that situation from, from X, where you have like the four, four people with like the intersecting relationships, and it like triples the number of characters and expands the, the flashback structure. So you have like eight main characters and uh, several peripheral characters who all know each other. And there's like this string of relationships where, where a boy is uh, loved by a woman that he likes and he loves a woman who only likes him. So it's all of these situations where everyone has somebody that they are in love with and has somebody who's in love with them, but nobody can quite match up. So it, it follows this, this group of people from like their last year in, in high school through their mid twenties. And it's, it's so, it's so dense and so complicated, but it's always clear who the characters are. And she takes, you know, a, a great deal of time in differentiating them and everyone is different and everyone is, is interesting. And it's really a really uh, neat movie. And I really hope more people see it. <laughs> So you couldn't convince anybody to go with you, but was the screening? Were there people at the screening, or was it just you? <laughs> no, there it was, there were a fair amount of people there. Uh, it's it's weird. Like most of the, most of the movies I saw at the festival were really well attended. Like the 
the Eugene, the Eugene Green movie. Uh, Eugene Green is like this uh, American-born uh, French filmmaker who makes these uh, really, uh, really bizarre uh, 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 films about Baroque art that are performed in a Baroque theatrical style, as in like literally the theater of the Baroque era. Mm-hmm. Uh so I expected like nobody to be at that one and it was it was packed and the audience was like totally into it and laughing and just having a great time with this movie and and it played like three times at the festival and the audience ate it up every time. So so I don't know fest- festival audiences are weird. Um like midnight after screening was packed whereas in in Seattle there was like 40 people there. But mm-hmm. uncertain relationships side was only about half full. Like uh, it didn't have any big stars, and and Hayward Mack is not is not yet a a big name in in film, but but she should be. Yeah, it sounds great. I look forward to checking I, you know that and X out. That sounds really cool. Yeah, and she also she co-wrote uh, a movie I saw earlier this year that uh, is actually on Hulu. Anyone can watch it on the on the Hulu uh, called Love in a Puff, which is another romantic comedy about uh, a, a pair of of smokers in Hong Kong and it's not really about smoking, but they do smoke a lot and it's, it's really good. And it was followed by a sequel called love and the buff that she did not co-write. And that is not nearly as good as the first one. Mm. She's the secret weapon. I think so. (laughs) (laughs) Anyway, uh, that's all. Was there anyone, anything else that you were really, uh, you saw all of, uh, the stuff I put on Letterbox. Were there any others that that kind of piqued your interest? Oh my God, Sean! You just—I mean—you threw like twenty movies just out at me. Um, <laughs> I don't know. I'd have to go look at the list. I mean, I—I mm-hmm. I did note that uh, what you said about your ranking—that you know you gave uh, you know uh, high marks to pretty much everything you saw, which I think is fantastic. I mean, I mm-hmm. you know we've talked about going next year together, maybe dragging some other Seattleites with us, and I think that'd be a lot of fun. Um, mm-hmm. And I would, I would you know relish the opportunity to kind of. Um, luxuriate and all of this, you know, world cinema and all these, you know, all these things. So I hope that, you know, maybe this time next year we can do a, a joint episode of the show. Um, That'd be great. It's, it's, it's a, yeah, it's a really great festival. Like it's just a great environment and everyone up there, I don't know if it's because they're Canadian or because it's a film festival, but everyone is just really nice and just really excited to be at the film festival. So, you know, I, I talked to, some people I'd met before, some people I knew from from the internet. I also just talked to like random old ladies in in lines, and everyone was just really cool and really nice. So it was a lot of fun. Talking to old ladies, huh? Yep. <laughs> like, oh, you write a blog. Neat. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Cool. That's yeah. great. I'm I'm glad you had a good time. I'm glad each year it it you know it it manages to still you know. Hold your interest and be awesome, because yeah. uh, <laughs> it's the only thing you look forward to in your life. It's the only it, carrot you dangle in front of you. Yeah, well, besides it's, recording it's, the show every other week. Yeah, it's it's my only vacation. It's my only time out of the house. It's it's nice to yeah. go away and be a grown up. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, let's turn our attentions to our uh, recurring features here on the show. Um, this week, our person of the week uh, is Eleanor Glynn, which is a name that probably isn't as, you know, well known or at least, you know, 
readily coming to mind as some of the other people we've talked to on the, about on the show, uh, like Keanu Reeves. <laughs> but uh, why don't you set up uh, who Eleanor Glynn is um, and why we're talking about her? Well, today, uh, we're, as we're recording this, it is October 17th, and today is her 150th birthday. She was born in uh, 1860. She's not, she's not alive anymore, just to, just to you know, spoiler alert. Yeah, spoiler alert. Uh, so she's, 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 she's not celebrating her 150. She lived for a long time, but not that long. She died, I think, in yes. 1940. <laughs> she died, I think, in 1943. Uh, anyway, uh, she was a writer of, uh, of kind of trashy novels around the turn of the century, the turn of the last century. Uh, and uh, somewhat scandalous for her uh for her romantic fiction uh kind of the uh the gone girls of their day i guess or the 50 shades of gray of their day i guess they were uh but she's most famous uh in the film world for uh coming up with the the concept of of it and i don't know you know she didn't really coin the the phrase it like it had been used before but she popularized the idea in a magazine article about it and it's about this uh this weird kind of magnetism or charisma that certain people have it's a it's a sexual attractiveness but it's not necessarily dependent on physical attractiveness it can also come out of uh personality or intelligence but it's it's a um uh, one of the ways she defines it is uh, is uh, self confidence and indifference as to whether you're pleasing or not. It's a and that kind of indifference is is important. It's it's a, a natural kind of magnetism as opposed to something that you really like work at. Uh, it is uh, is notoriously hard to define. You kind of know it when you see it, and it was uh, <laughs> most famously applied to the movie it from 1927, which starred Clara Bow and made her a superstar as the It Girl. And there have been a number of It Girls and It Boys ever since. And I, you know, I, I just, the, the concept is, is interesting to me because it's different than just being pretty or, or sexy. And it's different from just being like admirable. It's, you know, it's this kind of elusive magnetic quality that that the cinema loves, and that it's it's more important to to movies, I think, than anything else. Like it's, an, I think it's an essential quality of of stardom, or at least a certain kind of stardom. I don't know. What what do you think about it? <laughs> uh, I think it, it is interesting. Um, I I was you know. When we decided to talk about this, um, it made me think of how c- cinematic cultures—I mean, culture in general—I guess really is is different than it used to be. And I was trying to think of like contemporary examples of it: girls or boys or men or women or dogs or whatever. Um, and there's not like there's really I don't, there's not really anyone that captures the zeitgeist that I, as, as I think it used to be, um, or is it's, there's not someone that exemplifies a moment or maybe it's because I'm in the moment or maybe it's because I don't actually, um, 
follow stars really like i when people ask me who my favorite contemporary actors are i always kind of go blah 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 because i I don't actually think of actors very often Uh, i think that's a failing on my part um but when you look at someone like louise brooks or something um from the early days of cinema that really exemplified a a persona and a, a, a style and a look um that was adopted by a lot of people and um kind of, you know, was just the embodiment of something like that. And I try to think of people nowadays, um, whether it's in America or, or worldwide, you know, someone like Jennifer Lawrence or something like that, it doesn't, they don't really tap into the same kind of thing. And I don't know if that's because, um, uh, you know, society and, and culture is so splintered nowadays. And there are so many like little subsets on the internet and people follow what they're interested in. And, um, so I don't think there's anybody, and I hope you have an example that can just shatter this worldview uh, for me, but I, I don't feel like there has been really a contemporary it girl um, in quite some time. Well, I, uh, I don't know about that. Like, I think, uh, it, I think it's, uh, I think it's harder now because the, I think the nature of, of movie stardom and what we expect uh, film actors to do in their films is, is different now than it was in the, the studio era. And uh, I mentioned this a few months ago, but, but uh, James Harvey book about, uh, about movie stars, I just started reading like last night. And, and it opens kind of with this discussion of, of Greta Garbo and, uh, and movie stars, how, how movie stars in the past were, were personalities. They, they were like defined types and they weren't expected to like disappear into a role in the way that, that actors are now. Like uh, uh, Christian Bale is, is a different actor. He's a different personality in every movie that he's in. And we, we value that as great acting. And it, uh, unlike, uh, say, Cary Grant, who's, who's, you know, basically has the same voice and the same mannerisms in film after film. Uh, and we value that as well, but we kind of, we've lost the Cary Grants in favor of the Christian Bales. And I think that well, kind of, that kind of what I'm saying, right. And that, and that kind of, kind of ties into that. Like we don't have, uh, an it girl, like a Clara Bow, who's a Clara Bow in every movie or a Marilyn Monroe, who's Marilyn Monroe in every movie or a Robert Mitchum, who's always Robert Mitchum. Um, we have, we have, you know, our, our, our world defines these things differently. It's more mercurial. It's more is more chameleonic, and I think in in that sense, like Jennifer Lawrence, I think is is a a pretty good example of of what it means today. And actually, when I when I asked well, my wife if if she had any ideas for for it boys or it girls, Jennifer Lawrence was the one that came to mind for her, um, which was interesting. Was... It's not one that I thought of, but the person I was going to suggest. Um... Because I think, and this ties into exactly what you were just saying, um, of kind of uh, being a cipher or kind of, or, 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 or being a, I, I don't want to say blank because it sounds bad, but we talked about her before, but Scarlett Johansson and what she's been doing recently um, yeah. in these really adventurous kind of movies like Under the Skin and um, all of these things. Um, I think she would be my pick because she's really um, adapting to this kind of 
uh, new reality that we're, that we're kind of living in nowadays. Yeah. She was, she was the one that I thought of definitely. I think she, she totally, uh, uh, captures that kind of indifferent and kind of natural, uh, quality that the, the it girl means like, uh, you, you see Scarlett Johansson in a movie and you, you never think that she's like working on being pretty. Like she just, she doesn't care. She just is, uh, the the ones that uh that kind of came to mind for me uh the one that i kept coming back to that i don't think quite fits because i think uh there's too much effort there is uh is taylor swift who has uh in you know in in her videos in uh her appearances like on saturday night live or something there's like a real like natural uh magnetism and charisma to her but she seems to be working a lot. So I, I don't know that that, that, that quite fits. Uh, the other one I thought of is uh, uh, Joseph Gordon-Levitt, who I think kind of has uh, that kind of quality. I, I think he might be, be too hard of a worker also. Uh, yeah. The, the one I, I settled on, and, and you're not going to like it, is uh, Anna Kendrick. I don't. <laughs> oh my god! I, I you don't with your like you Anna... with your your profound hatred for Anna Kendrick and all I, that she stands for. I think for. she's a, a blight <laughs> upon humanity. I think uh, we should put her in a rocket and send her. To... I don't like. I I don't uh, dislike Anna Kendrick. I just didn't like the movie that she became a star in. Yeah, um, whatever, I... whatever, whatever. <laughs> I can't believe we're going. Well, anyway, but it's a, it's a, it's an interesting idea. Uh, this whole it girl um, thing, and and um, you know, yeah. it it is something that I I think is has if not completely vanished, it it's kind of it is mutated into something far different than what Eleanor Glynn um, kind of you know zeroed in on. Um, yeah, because she know, was she was like years ago. Yeah, she had she was writing about a specific time, like in the nineteen twenties, and. And the the flapper, this this right. new kind of woman who was uh, kind of doing away with with old kind of Victorian and, and Edwardian uh, prudery about you know public displays of sexuality, and and that kind of indifference to social norms was was an essential aspect of that. And maybe maybe it's not so much anymore. Maybe maybe what what it means now is 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 something different. Like they're they're. I think what what's unusual today is kind of uh, uh, genuineness and and actuality in people. Like there's, I don't know, modern modern culture is is like phony and stuff. <laughs> <laughs> well, and but, you so know, the, and so like were... and that's why I kept coming back to to Taylor Swift because for all of like her effort and all of her you know hard work at at you know being a, a star there's still something really kind of genuine about her that that kind of comes through despite all of the the various layers of of pop stardom well all i know is that she really likes diet coke <laughs> isn't that commercial like the greatest thing ever it's like the three best things in the universe like taylor swift diet coke and kittens I actually haven't seen the commercial. I've just no. seen the uh, uh, in front of Subway the like uh, you know wall cling with her sipping a. You could share a drink with uh, Taylor Swift. Oh well, there's this you commercial where person. she drinks Diet Coke and is surrounded by kittens. It's it's adorable. Ah. Oh well, 
I'll have to check that out. Yeah. <laughs> uh, this episode was not sponsored by Diet Coke. I'd like mm. to let that be known to the general public. Um, yeah. So moving on. Yeah. Um, this uh, this week is uh, celebrates uh, Independent Video Store Day, and we talked about it last year, and we talk about it every odd numbered episode of the show, um, and every even numbered episode of the show too. But uh, a little update: Scarecrow Video they had their Kickstarter. Uh, it was a huge success. Um, I'm sure a lot of people listening to this show donated, um, as did Sean and I, and. Um, and Scarecrow uh, just this week transitioned um, from being a for-profit business um, to a non-profit model. And uh, you and I are actually going there tomorrow um, together to uh, re-register as uh, you know members of this new collective. And uh, I'm very excited about that. And um, we decided to celebrate that um, this week by... Choosing for our Cinema Central, um, the very convoluted Cinema Central uh, title that you can only get at Scarecrow Video, <laughs> um, and uh, I think that's a wonderful, a wonderful theme, and um, it, it it brought up a lot of ideas within me of of titles that I've mentioned on the show before. You know, I saw um, the Chinese cut of Wong Kar Wai's The Grandmaster, thanks to Scarecrow. Um, Hell's a Poppin', which we talked about a few episodes ago, we both got because of Scarecrow, and these are things that are not readily available um, to to most people, um, at least legally. Um, and so Scarecrow fills yeah, that and that, and that and that's an important distinction, because a lot of these things you can steal off the internet, but uh, if you don't want to do that for either moral or, or lazy reasons, uh, you can just go to the video store and, and rent them. Uh, that, yes. Um, I, I should say that, I mean, and I'm not one of these, I, I'm not a person that combs the internet looking for hard to find things. Um, but I, it's a pretty safe bet that Scarecrow also has uh, a number of things that are not on the internet. <laughs> um, yeah, I'm, so. I'm sure I, I wouldn't, I wouldn't know. <laughs> there's, only, said, there's only a couple of things actually that I've looked for, uh, and not been able to find at Scarecrow and have only been able to find on the internet. There's like probably less than than five times as that yeah. happens. So that, so what was that your says a lot. Pick? Yeah, it does. Uh, so what was your pick for the essential Scarecrow well, video release? Yeah, well, well, like you, I've I've talked about them a lot. So it's actually hard to come up with one that I hadn't mentioned on the show. Like uh, they have all the Frederick Wiseman films. They have almost every Johnny Toe and and Choi Hark film. But I've talked about all those. So the the one that I picked is uh, Eric von Stroheim's Greed which uh, is one of the more famous uh, movies in history. It's from 1924. It was uh, famously uh, ridiculously long in its original cut and was taken away from him by Irving Thalberg and cut down to, to almost nothing. And then the negative was burned uh, in order to recover its silver content. And... Uh, what what remains of it has has been reconstructed, and I think this is the VHS that they have uh, of the uh, the kind of four hour reconstruction of the film that uh, that has like a lot of like stills, like uh, you see it you see it every once in a while where they have like a still with like a title card, and this is what was supposed to happen in this scene. Uh, I think uh, George Cukor's *The Star Is Born* does that. 
Anyway, they have it on VHS. It's a movie that's never been released on DVD. I don't think anywhere in the world. So unless it plays on TCM, which is the way I saw it in like 1997, uh, the only way to get it, as far as I know, is uh, at Scarecrow. That's a great pick. Yeah, um, yeah I, I I had a lot of fun trying to think of uh, a, a perfect selection for this because um there are the ones that we met you know that i've mentioned before on the show scarecrow has um you know the laser disc uh version of star wars which is uh you know the original you know anamorphic uh you know unfucked with version of the film that's in the best quality you're, you're likely to find for a while um they've got stuff like that they've got uh, tomorrow i plan on picking up um Steve Hant's film um Kill the Moonlight which uh is a film I've been wanting to see for a long time and uh Beck samples it um in Loser uh the I'm a driver I'm a winner uh mm-hmm. things are going to change I can feel it is from that film and Steve Hant was a uh, a friend of Beck's and and played in bands with him and and directed those early Beck videos and so um I saw that Scarecrow has that so I'm going to pick that up tomorrow but the the film I'm picking um is a film I've seen before and, and uh, enjoy immensely. It's uh, Penelope Spheres' uh, Decline of Western Civilization, mm-hmm. um, which is is currently only in VHS form. I, I did see some, some some news that she's working on uh, releasing all three in her trilogy um, on DVD soon, but they've, as far as I know, never been released in the States um, on DVD, but they're on VHS. Um, the only one I've seen is the first one, um, the original Decline of Western Civilization, which um, follows a lot of the um, late 70s, early 80s um, hardcore punk rock bands from uh, Southern California, um, in particular like Black Flag and The Germs. And um, there are clips of it online, the Black Flag segments online, you know, separately. Um, but the movie as a whole is really interesting. And, and um the subsequent sequels I'm interested in as well. Uh, part two, the metal years follows the rise of bands like guns and roses and stuff, um, in LA. Um, and then the third one, um, is like crusty punks, um, like 10 years later from that. But, um, but the first one is, I think the most exciting one, at least from my musical interests. And, uh, it's really great that they've got it. Um, you know, is if you got a, you know, VCR, you can just, you know, check it out and bring it home and, and enjoy, you know, it in all its glory. Um, and I think Scarecrow, I know they loan out or they rent out um, Laserdisc players and, and stuff like that. Do they loan I'm, out VHS? I'm pretty sure they do. Yeah. Um, so they're there to help you with that too, which is great because uh, I no longer have a VCR. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, hooray for Scarecrow. I'm, I'm really looking forward to this new uh, chapter in their, in their existence. And, um, you know, I'm once again just really gratified that people stepped up to support this uh, institution um, that you and I are lucky enough to live within driving distance of. <laughs> Absolutely. I appreciate it selfishly is what I'm trying to say. Um, so anyway, without further ado, let's keep the show humming along. Um, we're going to dive into our second film this week, which... Uh, is thematically very, very, very similar um, to Gone Girl. So uh, here's a clip from The Vanishing. Je m'appelle Raymond Lemorne. Je suis sociopathe et claustrophobe. Je n'ai jamais trompé ma femme. Ah. Il y avait le tire-bouchon, s'il te plaît, dans le tire-bouchon. 
pour moi le pire, ce n'est pas tué. Parce que mine de rien, c'est devenu une passion. Tu as quelque chose dans la tête Vous êtes un euh, menteur. Menteur Non, je ne veux Non. Oui Et euh, je, je veux la. Euh, 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 euh. Vous avez violé Saskia. Si, elle est morte. Je vais mourir moi aussi. Et si l'homme qui voulait savoir, c'était vous. So, The Vanishing uh, came out in 1988. As you said, it was directed by George Sluiser, who uh, unfortunately just just died. Yeah, like uh, three weeks ago or something. Yeah, which is not funny, Mike. And why are you laughing? Because, uh, you know, the George Sanders show curse uh, yeah, has reawakened. Yeah. Watch <laughs> out, David Fincher and Eleanor Glenn. Trent Reznor. <laughs> Uh, and uh, actually, the movie is actually coming out. Criterion's uh, re-releasing it in Blu-ray in like two weeks. Yeah, which... the, have you seen the cover of it? No, it is so awesome. It yeah. is a really awesome cover. Yeah, that's a, that's another thing that we didn't know when when we decided to talk about this movie. So I, it's it's like the the George Sanders curse and the George Sanders boon. That's right. <laughs> Huzzah! Yeah. Anyway, uh, it is about uh, like like we said, we're going to spoil it, just as we did with Gone Girl, because there's really no way to talk about it interestingly or you know reasonably competently without uh, <laughs> without talking about what actually happens in the movie. And so it's a a Dutch couple who are traveling through uh, France, and they stop at a gas station, and the woman disappears. And then the man like searches and searches for her and cannot find her. And then three years later, we spend an hour following a, a weird sociopath. And it turns out that, that he kidnapped her and, and killed her. And that's the movie. That's the movie. That's it. And uh, like you, you asked the question with Gone Girl or I asked the question with Gone Girl. I can't remember because that was like an hour ago. Um, <laughs> Uh, if if the movie where am I? <laughs> if the movie surprised me, like if I knew where it was going to go, and and if that bothered me, and uh, my answer with Gone Girl was I wasn't surprised at all, and that didn't bother me. Uh, with The Vanishing, I was surprised, like it did not go into any places that I expected, and I was kind of disappointed with where it did go. So <laughs> that's a that's a good that's really great because I feel <laughs> once again I I feel the same way um, with you I. Um, the movie, the movie surprised me from the very beginning because it kind of uh, it tricks you initially because there's a, the, the very first scene is them driving and they get stuck in the tunnel when they run out of gas in their car. And he, the, the man, Rex Hoffman is his character's name, he, um, which is a funny-ass funny name. That's why I wrote it down. <laughs> what, I, I made like six, no six, literally like six notes for this movie, and one of them was Rex Hoffman. So that's what we're working with here, people. Right. Um, but anyway, it, the movie kind of sets up 
at least for me, the expectation that that's when she's going to go missing is he goes off in search of a gas station to get, you know, to fill up the jug with gas to get them, you know, further down the road. Um, and she's in this tunnel. And so you're like, oh, my God, she's missing already. But uh, right. Because every, everyone who's watching the movie knows this premise. It's like it's it's I knew the premise of this movie like 25 years ago and I'd right. never heard of movies. But and maybe it was just from the remake. But it's it's a great premise. Like uh a guy and a girl, and the wife disappears. Where did she go? Uh, so you're expecting you're expecting her to disappear at any moment, right? Uh, and all of that, I, I actually really enjoyed all of this the stuff with her when she was there, and then once she disappeared, that was that was good stuff. Uh, the first third of the movie, I really liked. The rest, eh. I, what, what I did you think? Of, what did you think of the rest? Uh, yeah, I was disappointed, uh, to say the least, um, in it. I, 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 I did appreciate, like, I didn't expect it to, um, just like you said at the beginning, I, I didn't expect it to then take this left turn and follow the kidnapper and, and killer of her. Um, and so I was like, oh, that, for, for half a second, I was like, oh, that's an interesting way of following, you know, you know of continuing this story is following the guy that did it. Um, but then it's like, oh, wait. Now I'm just following the guy that did it. <laughs> and like, there's no more excitement in the movie. Um, there's no more, there's no more, there's nothing really to chew on anymore. It becomes um, a pretty kind of plotting. Um, it's plotting, plotting um, at, at that point um, as we follow this guy and then we see him kind of tormenting Rex Hoffman, um, who has kind of reawakened his interest in, in trying to track her down um, and kind of the way the lengths that this guy goes to, to basically fuck with him um, uh, before uh, taking him uh, and showing exactly what happened and basically monologuing like a, a villain in a superhero movie um, about how genius he was in his plans and whatever. And it's like, uh, it's disappointing. It is disappointing because the very beginning of that movie um, like you said, it does set up some interesting stuff, and um, and even even though, like on a technical level, the in, the beginning of the film is is interesting from a filmmaking standpoint because um, the sequence at the gas station um, is filmed and edited in a really interesting way that pays off later down the line. But um, it's 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 a little erratic. Um, you'll see a shot of uh, Rex walking to the car to like leave a note for her or something. And then it'll cut and have him walking to the car again, like later on. So like it, 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 it messes up the, the, um, the flow of kind of the, the narrative in that sequence, which kind of adds to the um, confusion that he's feeling. And it does some kind of interesting things there that kind of get you, um, you know, off, off kilter or whatever. Um, and then unfortunately after that point, uh, the movie kind of just becomes pretty rote in my opinion. Yeah. It's, uh, it's like, it, it, it has the idea of the sociopath, uh, who is like interested in, who doesn't, you know, view humans as humans, but has like objects as like curiosities and, and, you know, things to, to test his own experiences with. Uh, it's something that we've seen, you know, dozens of times before, and there's all kinds of, you know, theorizing about sociopaths or, or whatever it, in, in the film, it's a narrative construct of a sociopath. I have no idea if it has any bearing on reality, but what it means for the movie is that we're like locked with this, with this guy 
who is like totally um, uninteresting because he is uninterested. Like I, I, I just, it's like being locked in with a cipher. Like there's nothing. Well, and then there's the, nothing, there's nothing really to like grab onto there because I mean, he's, he's evil. He's a sociopath. Okay. And you know, as, as the movie gets near the end, there's like an interesting, like red pill, blue pill question. Like does, uh, does Rex really want to know what happened to his wife? Cause you know, it'll probably, you know, end up with him dead. And the, the question of whether he wants to know and end up dead or wants to go on living and never know. And you know the the they they build up that conflict and it's well it's well acted by by the guy who plays Rex I think because he's kind of like swirling around in the park and he's really you know you 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 get the feel of a guy who would who would choose to to who could not live without knowing what happened. Uh, I, it's believable that he would like make the choice that he makes, but it's not. It's not as interesting as uh, something like Gone Girl, which which ratchets up the crazy and just kind of, you know, shoots off in all kinds of different directions. Like there's so much to chew on with Gone Girl. And I feel like there's not anything at all to chew on with The Vanishing. Well, and the, and the more we learn about the sociopath, the more annoying it gets. Um, you know, when we learn that the reason he did this was that it's so it's so stupid it makes you really i mean me angry at least um he, you know he had a moment of pure heroism where he saved a girl from drowning and his daughter looked up to him as a uh, you know a role model in that moment and he decided as an experiment i wanted to try to do the most evil thing possible or whatever it was like really that's your explanation this is that's just I'd rather not know stuff like that, you know, yeah. um, which just makes it, it just makes it really bad. Um, the, the one, the one really, uh, the one kind of open thing, the one, the, the thing that, that, that does make me think that, that this is a good movie, if not an entirely successful one is that opening sequence. And, and specifically the, the part that you mentioned where he leaves her alone in the tunnel and he walks off. And, uh, and Sluzer gives us a, a close-up of Rex as he's walking away and she's like screaming, don't leave me, don't abandon me. And he, and he walks off and he gets the smile on his face, which is really kind of evil. And it's, it's the kind of, of reaction that you would expect from a sociopath. So I think there's kind of this implication that Rex and the killer are not really all that different. And that it brings a, a degree of kind of disturbing of of reality to the film that that the rest of the movie does not. Like that is that is cold that he just leaves her oh, it's a horrible in that thing tunnel. That he does. Yeah, it's a horrible thing. And uh, and it made it made me think that that maybe like her disappearance, maybe the rest of the film was like was like Gone Girl, like a revenge thing where where she disappears because fuck that guy for leaving me alone in the tunnel, but. But no, he, she she forgave him, and they were were happy and in love, and then she was killed. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Um, I I will say that the payoff, um, even though you can see it, I mean, well, you can see, like you said, um, that he's he's got this um, this 
destructive choice of, you know, do I, do I find out and die or do I go on living and, and never know? Um, I do love the payoff of him waking up in a coffin, um, like, un, you know, being <laughs> buried alive. Um, I, that was speaking of bringing the crazy, like I wish that there was a little bit more of that leading up to that moment instead of being kind of just very methodical, like this happened and then this happened. And, you know, um, cause once he's in there, you're like, okay, that's pretty awesome. <laughs> yeah. And it, and it, it fit in like, and there's, and there's, you know, narrative clues that in retrospect are really obvious. Like, like at one point, uh, when they're driving along, uh, uh, Rex and the sociopath, they get pulled over and, and the cops like, you weren't wearing your seatbelt. And the sociopath says, I have a medical condition. I am claustrophobic. And then, and then like, uh, uh, five minutes later, like when he's telling, uh, Rex, um, what he was set out to do, he was going to do the, the worst thing possible. And there are things that he thinks are worse than death. So, you know, you put two and two together, buried alive. Right. Buried alive, yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So, a, but... a lot of the movie is like that. It's like, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Um, and I, I, think, I think you hit on something, too, is um, I think the best performance is by, um, I'm going to totally screw up this name, Joanna, Johanna Terst. Daggy, uh, who plays Saskia, the uh, the woman in question who disappears, um, she's the most interesting character in the movie, and she's and she makes us really like her. Like she's she's charming and she's funny and she's goofy um, and um, adoring and all these all these wonderful things. And um, but also you know she's offended and she's you know she's complex and you know in the in the five minutes we get with her. Mm-hmm. Um, and so you can kind of see why a guy like Rex would would um, be kind of obsessed with her once she's gone. But unfortunately, uh, she's then gone <laughs> for the rest of the movie and, and right. no and, one really and, and when she does come back and we see like the the flashbacks of of her disappearance, uh, she's really dumb. <laughs> Well, yeah, she's, yeah, she does really, uh, really bad, uh, bad choices. Just a a bunch of, a series of really bad choices. (laughs) Yeah, and it's made, it's made the worst. Like, uh, like his scheme for kidnapping women is to like try and talk them into getting into his car and then he will like, you know, chloroform them, which is, seems like a terrible scheme, but whatever. Uh, (laughs) every time he tries it, all of the women are like, I'm not getting in your car, freak. Yeah, Every single one. It happens like a half dozen times. It's like, no, I'm not gonna, I'm just going to walk. Uh, except her. She's the only one dumb enough to get into his car. And Yeah, the movie tries to explain, like, it tries to show that she was, initially had that, you know, I like, you know, uh, fear or that uh, aversion to doing that. But then she sees a picture of him with his wife and his kids and she's like, oh, I guess it's okay. <laughs> right, because a guy uh, with a wife and kids can't be a sociopath. He could never right? kill anybody. Yeah, yeah. jeez. Uh, I know, I, I know, I know. The movie tries to make excuses for stuff like that. What, what, do, you, what do you think of the dream? Because the, the golden egg. Yeah, the dream seems like really weird when she relates it and then of course it comes true. Because yeah, they're like so, in eggs. Buried the, the, next to the each movie's, other. <laughs> the movie's based on a on a book uh, called The Golden Egg, yeah. uh, and she tells uh, at, the, at the very beginning she tells Rex of the story that she, or the the dream that she had, uh, which is one that she's had before, where she's in a golden egg. Um, the golden egg really annoyed me. Yeah, 
um i'm glad the movie was called the vanishing instead of the golden egg <laughs> i'll yeah. say that much and if and i and they could have excised that completely and i it wouldn't have it wouldn't like the movie would have been in a better place um because that adds nothing to the movie it really adds zero to it in my mind yeah <laughs> um yeah uh, I did notice, you know, there there were a couple of kind of interesting things um, that, yeah, you know, were a little obvious. Um, the the their vacation is taking place during um, Tour de France, um, and the the early scene at the gas station, it's on everybody's mind, um, and there are all these uh, links that are made with with the external world's, you know, obsession with uh, Tour de France and, and what's going on, um, with these, with this couple. And, you know, the, I didn't write down all of the lines, but you know, there, there are lines, um, that are, that are, um, commentary by like a, you know, sportscaster on the radio that someone's listening to that, you know, one of, one of the lines was it's a, it's a duel between two men, you know, of these, these cyclists or whatever, but obviously it's also, you know, kind of laying out what the movie has, you know, in store for us and stuff. Um, and I thought, once again, I thought it was, there was some interesting ideas there that could have been fleshed out a little bit better or, or executed a little bit better. Um, I thought he was trying, <laughs> um, but it didn't really um, add up to much. Yeah. Um, yeah. There are... <laughs> <laughs> there, there are better films with similar premises, and I, uh, the Lady Vanishes, of course, uh, the Hitchcock movie, where there's an old lady on a train and she vanishes. Uh, but is is probably the most famous. But also, uh, have you seen Roman Polanski's uh, Frantic, which came out the same year <laughs> with uh, Harrison? Nice. Yeah, Harrison Ford is in France and his wife disappears. And he uh, frantically searches for her. Uh, and there's also uh, uh, one with uh, Gene Simmons from 1950 called "So Long at the Fair," and she's at the uh, she's at the fair with uh, I think her brother, and her brother disappears, and everyone like pretends to have never seen him. Uh, that's uh, th these are all much better movies. Well, speaking of Hitchcock, there are three Hitchcock movies that I thought of uh, in relation to this movie or, or aspects of this movie um, beyond The Lady Vanishes. And um, they're Frenzy, uh, Rebecca, and Vertigo. Um, and for, mm. for different reasons for each one. Frenzy, um, because uh, some, Frenzy's really great in showing... Um, the point of view of the, the, the psychopath. Well, and also uh, how his plans can go awry or, or, you know, the, or how difficult it is to pull off something, you know, like, sure, you know, there's this sure. scene in the potato truck or whatever in frenzy, which is fucking hilarious. Um, and kind of, you know, touches on, you know, the, as this movie shows so often, um, the sociopath trying to get his plans enacted and, and running into difficulties. Um, Rebecca, um, and vertigo too um, are are kind of haunted by you know this woman that's now gone obviously and um, you know Rex Hoffman ends up in a relationship with another woman you know three years later um, which is ultimately dissolved because you know he can't give up this you know the ideal of um, you know the woman that went missing 
uh, Saskia. Um, and he tries to, even at one point, tries to remake the other woman in, in Saskia's image. Not, not as, uh, as blatantly as in Vertigo or anything. But, um, but those kind of, you know, those, the, the, that, that DNA is, is in here a little bit. But, but like you said, um, all three of those movies are, are vastly superior to uh, The Vanishing. Yeah, Rebe- Rebecca is a movie that, that I think about a lot in relation to Gone Girl. Definitely. Which, uh, which I, I, I see as like uh, Rebecca from Rebecca's point of view. <laughs> yeah, that's a, good, that's a good way of putting it. Yeah. Totally. If, you know, if she hadn't uh, accidentally died. <laughs> <laughs> right. Yeah. Uh, which is like the biggest cop out in history, but yeah, um, well, what are you gonna do? I know it, it works, it works, it works, but you know, it so, um, but but you know, Rebecca also uh, uh, a film by a meticulous suspense filmmaker, uh, from a source novel that is uh, somewhat trashy by a popular novelist, totally, absolutely, Daphne du Maurier, Gillian Flynn, you know, they would make a great double feature. Yeah. Uh, you know, my double feature with uh, Gone Girl was uh. Um, to the wonder, which uh, <laughs> which has a lot more parallels than uh, just Ben Affleck. I must sure. I must say I'm not going to get into it, but uh, there are parallels there. Yeah, we didn't really talk about Affleck, but I I think he's much more interesting as an actor than as a director lately. <laughs> oh, I, yeah. Is anybody arguing that? No, absolutely. Yeah. Um, I think he's really good in in Gone Girl. Uh, I I think he he plays the smarming smarmy uh, jerk really uh, well. <laughs> so yeah. but anyway that's uh, that's the vanishing i'd rather talk about gone girl <laughs> um yeah it's not a terrible movie it's no, got some no, good elements to it you know but yeah it's it was it was i was disappointed i was expecting a little bit more but um I, but with the, that, the, oh the other one uh uh i was hoping for picnic at hanging rock and i did not get that you did not get that here no no yeah well, you know what you're going to get? You're going to get yourself some more Nine Inch Nails here. Uh, here's, <laughs> here's another instrumental track off the Ghosts uh, album.
All right. Uh, thanks, Trent. That's our show for this week. We are going to be back in two weeks on right around Halloween for an episode dedicated to the great uh, film programmer, curator, uh, archivist, Henri Langlois, who will be celebrating his 100th birthday uh, this coming month on November 13th. So we're going to watch a couple of films about museums. Uh, Alain René's Toute la Memoire du Monde and Alexander Sakharov's Russian Ark. So that'll be exciting. I just finished reading the, uh, the Henri Langlois biography, and it was really great. Awesome. Yeah, we will definitely dive into his life and work uh, on that show. Um, I'd also like to point out that we, uh, I don't know if this was mentioned uh, previously, but you and I did uh, some actual legwork and worked out a tentative uh, schedule for the rest of the year. Um, which you can find on the website. Um, we've got a Bob Dylan episode coming up. We've got our uh, New to Us in 2014 episode, our Best of 84 episode. Um, all the movies are picked for those. Uh, we also have a Bollywood episode at the end of November uh, that we don't have films picked for yet. But if you want to see what's coming up, uh, coming down the pipeline, maybe you know follow along, uh, you can find that at the georgesandershow.blogspot.com uh, on the show calendar uh, link page there um you could suggest some bollywood movies for us to talk about uh by contacting us either through twitter uh at geo sanders show or uh on email uh at the george sanders show at gmail.com um so yeah that you know i'm glad we've got uh, you know our ducks in a row so to speak uh, <laughs> and i think we're i think we're gonna have some good uh movies to talk about i'm really looking forward to some yeah, of these things for so. now it's it's nice to like be back on schedule we've we've kind of been all over the place for the last several months between my moving and your various vacations so it's nice to yeah so get some some get order back, back in our uh, podcasting lives <laughs> that's right um if you are in seattle um Anytime, you know, in the next, I guess the rest of the year, really, um, currently running at the Seattle Art Museum is the annual um, film noir series that has been going on for 37 years um, and is is really awesome. I've, I've only gone a, a couple of times. Um, tickets sell out really quickly. You can There's a standby line, but it, it can be a little bit of a hassle. Um, but... It's really cool if you can make it. All the films are in 35 millimeter. They're about halfway through the series right now, um, maybe a third of the way. Um, and they've got some really interesting titles coming up. Um, it's every Thursday night at the Seattle Art Museum. Uh, tickets are eight bucks uh, a pop. And it's a nice little jewel box kind of theater there. And um, the one that I've seen that, I, that I'll recommend is later in the, in the series. It's coming uh, November 20th, so about a month out from now. But it's The, uh, the Big Combo, which is a great noir um, that I yeah. saw earlier, earlier this year, I believe, and uh, has a guy uh, being tortured by a drum solo, which is uh, pretty cold, people. It's pretty cold. Uh, but they got a bunch of interesting stuff. Um, some shakedown, uh, slaughter on Tenth Avenue, abandoned. All these interesting noirs that I've I've never seen or heard of before. Mm -hmm. um, but but uh, they always pull out some some you know heavy hitters um, and then mix it in with some you know things that are just really off the wall and bonkers. So um, have you ever been to the uh, film noir series, Sean? I've I've never been to the art museum for a movie. It's pretty cool. I yeah. I, I saw. Um, 
Werner Herz- I saw Werner Herzog there um, premiering um, the Wild Blue Yonder there. I've, I've seen a few things, and I, I saw um, the Killers there and some stuff. And it's a nice. It's a, what I like about it is you know, especially for the noir stuff, is um, the audience for it. I think is the same audience it's been for the last 37 years. Um, but they're very, they're very respectful, um, but really invested and interested in it. And you're not going to get, you know, people talking to each other during the movie. It's, it's, it's a very um, respectful audience. And, and, and I appreciate that. So right on. it's cool. Yeah. Uh, if you are in Hong Kong, uh, first of all, good luck. Uh, second, uh, coming, coming up starting next week is the Hong Kong Asian Film Festival. And uh, kicking the festival off is the new Johnny Toe movie, Don't Go Breaking My Heart 2, which uh, does not count as a repertory film pick, but you should go see it anyway. Uh, they're also playing at the festival uh, a bunch of stuff that I don't recognize by title, but uh, that I'm sure is, is nonetheless great. Uh, they're also, they got the uh, Hong Sang-soo film, uh, Hill of Freedom. Uh, but uh, one cool thing that they're doing is coming up on November 8th. Uh, they're playing the restored version of King Hu's Dragon Gate Inn, and they're following that up with the uh, uh, Choi Hark-produced remake, uh, New Dragon Gate Inn, from 1992. So that is a, a very interesting double feature to see how uh, Choi kind of... Um, pays homage to King Who, but also kind of updates it with his own kind of kind of quirky uh, take on the world. So that is a double feature that I would not miss if I was in Hong Kong unless the uh, government cracked down on me. <laughs> right. Uh, yeah. <laughs> that, that, that does sound really cool. Yeah. Um, and good luck to everybody out there, as you said. Um, yeah, so without further ado, uh, we're going to take off and... Uh, you know, one of my favorite things about um, Drew Goddard's film, The Cabin in the Woods, uh, from, what, two years ago now, um, was that the movie ends, like, narratively, it, it comes to a halt right at the very end. I don't want to spoil it. We've done enough spoilers this week. And screen goes black, and as soon as, and as, soon as that happens, Nine Inch Nails' song, uh, Last, comes on and just kicks your butt. And so we're going to do that right now. Here you go.